Let's turn our attention back to God's word. As you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25, a quick reminder that we're in the middle of Moses' application of the Ten Commandments to life in the promised land. And the Israelites aren't there yet. They're on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, having uh, gotten there after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And these, again, are Moses' last words to the people because he won't be leading them into the promised land. Joshua will be doing that. And last week we went over the seventh and eighth commandments, and so today we've got the ninth. So let's read, starting in verse 8. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in, the, in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. They, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in the presence of a number, uh, uh, in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not, not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, to these laws, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the role, the way in which these show us your ninth commandment, the way in which these show us how we are not to lie and how we are not to fall, uh, bear false witness. But Lord, we ask that these laws would also show us how we ought to bear faithful witness to you. Lord, we ask uh, that we would see your gospel pointed to from your scripture. For, Lord, we know that all scripture points to your son. And so, Lord, we ask, finally and, and most of all, that you would show us Jesus, that we might behold him and be transformed by him, 
that we might love him and be conformed to his image more and more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as many of you know, uh, the youth group goes to a retreat called Majnik every year. There's one in the fall for middle schoolers and one in the spring for high schoolers. <clears throat> and invariably, within the guys' cabins, ground rules have to be set about living. Uh, because when teenage boys get together, they tend to be slobs. And I say stuff like, remember to flush after you go to the bathroom. Shower with soap and shampoo, please, after you exercise, or just, even if you don't exercise, please shower. Keep your mess contained. Use deodorant, please use deodorant. And even then, after all of those rules and all of those directives, the smell of the middle school boys' cabin is pretty awful. But then at the end of the retreat, as we, we as a group thoroughly clean the cabins from top to bottom, and uh, lest you, your middle schoolers or high schools tell you that they don't know how to clean, they do. Because here's a list of the things that we do. Uh, beds are made, floors are swept, mirrors are sprayed and cleaned, chrome is polished, toilets and showers are scrubbed, and the trash is taken out, as well as uh, bags are packed. I, th I say things at the start of that like, we want to leave this place better than we found it. And it struck me that the directives at the beginning of the retreat are meant to restrain the evil of middle school stank, okay, against others because it is offensive. But the directive at the end of the retreat is meant to, to spur us on to do active good for others, namely the camp staff, the cleaning crews that will follow, and the folks that will be using the facilities next. And really, those, those directives are two sides of the same point. Don't make a mess and leave it better than you found it. Point to the same issue. They really do. But they come at it from different sides. And so it is with our passage this morning and the ninth commandment. Moses gives us two types of loss here. And they are, the two, they are two sides of the same coin. The first type seeks to restrain the evil of lying. They direct us to not bear false witness against our neighbor in a number of situations. Basically, don't make a mess of things by lying. And the second type seeks to do good through the faithful witness to the truth, justice, and mercy of God. That's looking to leave your neighbor in better shape than you found him or her because of your faithful witness to God. Now, warning, there is a wide range of topics that these laws cover. There is a reason why the editors of the ESV subtitled this section miscellaneous laws. So we get a whole wide range that seemingly don't go together, but they do. And I think as we think about each situation and how it fits into don't make a mess or leave it better than you found it, we should hopefully begin to see our need for the truth and how the gospel not only gives us the truth, but far more as well. And of the eight laws that we get in this passage, hopefully marked for you by paragraphs in your Bible, so each paragraph is a different law. Five of those can broadly fit under the category of don't make a mess. And we'll see here how lying pits you against your neighbor. We'll be looking at verses 8 and 9, 14 and 15, 16, chapter 25, 1 through 3, and 25, 4. If you need, if that was too fast for you, I've put them, uh, put those specific sections 
in the sermon outline, which you can find online as well. So let's start with verses eight and nine, just sort of run through all of these laws to try to get a sense of what God is telling us. So the prescription to obey laws about leprous diseases in verses eight and nine seem to be somewhat out of place here. But it is uh, verse nine that helps us make the connection. The call to remember Miriam recalls the incident in Numbers 12, where Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. In that incident, Miriam and Aaron bore false witness against Moses by saying that God also spoke through them and not just Moses. It was an attack against Moses's authority and misrepresented his relationship to the Lord, which the Lord was quick to set straight. He calls them out before the entire congregation and says to them that while God speaks to other prophets through dreams and visions, so he does speak to Miriam and Aaron, that's not untrue. He speaks differently with Moses. With Moses, he speaks mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and, behold, and he, that is Moses, before, beholds the form of the Lord. The issue here isn't just the inaccurate portrayal of Moses' unique relationship with the Lord at the time which is a type of lying, but also Miriam and Aaron's desire to climb the prophetic ranks, if you will, at Moses' expense, which is the against thy neighbor part of uh, the ninth commandment. But the sin isn't just against Moses. It's also against God, because Moses was God's chosen leader of the people. And so thus a strike against Moses was a strike against God's wisdom in choosing Moses. And so it's a big giant mess, and it all begins with a lie. And as we move to verses 14 and 15, the employer there was directed to not delay in paying the worker his wages because he depended on them. This was a class of worker that was extremely poor, that they needed to be paid every single day. And so this is literally living paycheck to paycheck, ancient Near East style. For folks like this, their lives were literally balanced on an edge each and every day. They're extremely vulnerable and everyone knows it. And thus, we know that there would have had to have been an agreement before the day's labor to then pay for it at the end of the day. The worker would not have settled for anything less. And this is where the line comes in. In this situation, the employer has obviously a lot of power. A single day's delay in paying could put the employee into debt simply to meet living expenses. And that debt would then accrue interest, turning the worker into a slave for all intents and purposes. But to do so would be to violate that initial agreement, revealing that the lie, uh, revealing that that promised payment at the beginning of the day was a lie. Because of this lie, the employer isn't acting in good faith, but taking advantage of his position to turn his workers into slaves. And therefore, we get this language of oppression. The worker crying out to God against his um, employer or oppressor here. And it's, it's why it rises to the level of sin. You see, just a few verses later in, verses, in verse 18, the Lord calls them to remember that they too were oppressed not very long ago. The Lord had freed them from oppression in Egypt. And so it becomes a massive affront to that salvation and deliverance that they received coming out of Egypt by, uh, by taking um, that which has been set free 
back into the bondage of, of slavery and oppression. Do you see the mess socially and theologically and spiritually that comes out of this kind of line? It all begins with a lie. And in verse 16, we see the principle of individual responsibility. Each person is responsible for his or, own, his or her own sin and not somebody else's. And yet, the Lord knows that folks will do whatever it takes, even killing, there goes the sixth, command, uh, sixth commandment, to get, and there's the eighth, because they're trying to steal, what they want, which is the tenth commandment, which is coveting, which we'll talk about next week. The Lord knows that people will do whatever it takes to get what they want. And so do you see how our sin is so, so comprehensively goes against what is righteous in the Lord's eyes? Do you see the corruption and guilt sin brings? Do you see that the Ten Commandments go together to describe our sinfulness? And in this case, where fathers are being put to death because of their children and vice versa, the plots of evil sinners against their neighbors requires lying. Because back then, the, word, the death penalty required the testimony of two or three people. And so in order to put to death an innocent person, false testimony had to be given. And so thus, the road for sin must go through false witness. What a murderous mess we see. And it all begins with a lie. Skipping to chapter 25, verse 4, this verse isn't about animal welfare. This is the verse about not muzzling the ox as it treads out grain. This isn't about animal welfare, but about workers deserving their wages. Everything we just went over about withholding wages fits here. But it's not just the labor agreement that contains a lie, but also in what the lack of pay says about the work. You see, we're paid for the value of our work. Work like treading out grain would have been essential to the miller, as well as to the farmer. And it is honorable work, and that work, the work itself is demeaned when fair wages aren't paid. You are proclaiming falsely about your worker's work. It's not just about the wages or even the work as well, because it's also about the reputation of the worker as well. When you refuse to pay them a fair wage, you are saying, your work stinks. You're not worth it. What a mess. And it all begins with a lie. And then finally, let's look at the beginning of chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. Here the message is just a little bit more subtle than the others. Here the call to justice and proportional dignified punishment protects against the lies excessive punishment brings. It also protects against the vindictive spirit within sinful hearts. Because when you sin against me, I want you to not only pay, but I want you to pay as far as I can get, get away with it. And so the question really isn't whether corporal punishment is deserved. The question is, what do the lashes say about the person? The lashes were intended to show their guilt and the severity of their offense but they weren't to degrade the offender's dignity or permanently harm them. Note that they were to um, do the lashing in front of the judge. And so this isn't out in public in the public square, but it's right there in court. And that it's meant not to degrade 
the offender. After all, the offender still bears the image of God. We are punishing him for his offense, not for who he is. Excessive punishment would be to treat them as if they were an animal, to humiliate them before the entire community. Excessive punishment would be a lie in that it overblows the severity of the offense, seeking to degrade the neighbor and strikes at the person itself rather than dealing with the actions. Do you see the lie? That now I'm not punishing you for what you have done, but I'm punishing you for who you are. And so let's summarize quickly. Don't lie. It makes a mess. But it is here in the midst of a law about limits on corporal punishment that we begin to shift, we begin to see the shift to the other type of directive. We begin to see that the Lord doesn't just care about lying because it makes a mess, but he also cares about the relationships between people. Those three words at the end of the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor against thy neighbor. Those words add a world of context. Justice, truth, and what is right absolutely do matter. Messes happen when they don't matter, and sometimes even when they do. But the ninth commandment is more than just a devotion to the truth. After all, even for those that are guilty, that deserve punishment, God strives to care for them, to meet them in the midst of their punishment. And hopefully you can hear notes of the gospel in those words. You see, it's here that the positive side of the commandment begins to come into focus. While we're not to bear false witness against your neighbor because it makes a mess, the flip side is that we are to bear faithful witness for your neighbor. And in many ways, leave them better than we have found them. But what does it mean to bear faithful witness for your neighbor? Well, the first thing that we need to figure out is what we are witnessing to. Bearing witness is a lot like faith in that it requires an object to make sense. You can't simply bear witness or have faith, but rather we have to bear witness to something or have faith in something or someone. And in this case, we are bearing witness to the one to whom we belong. Just as ambassadors speak on behalf of the countries they belong to, we too speak on behalf of the one to whom we belong. After all, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ, and so who do we represent? We represent Christ. And we instinctively understand that our lives give testimony to who God is. For instance, when I drive, I'm not the most courteous or informative because I don't always use my turn signal, I'm sorry, right? I'm not the, I'm not the most offensive. I kind of drive a little faster than I, maybe I should. I sometimes cut people off, generally accidentally, um, <laughs> hopefully accidentally. Um, sometimes I end up blocking the box at red lights, which I hate. Oh yeah, I know, I heard that, I heard that down there, right? I hate that, right? But I sometimes do it and it like makes me cringe. And there's a reason why there is not a Christian fish on the back of my car, <laughs> right? And you guys get this, right? You get why I don't have that on the back of my car, because if I were to, people would know to whom I belong. And they would understand, we all understand that my driving is not gonna give a good witness to who God is. 
it is not going to be winsome and helpful to the cause, right, to the kingdom. But in fact, what does it do? It bears false witness to who I am in Christ Jesus and who God is. Can you tell I've been convicted about sort of my false witness this week, right? And so the last three laws that we have are meant to highlight and call us to a faithful witness to who God is. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 13 in chapter 24, 17 to 18, and then 19 through 22. These three laws are meant to highlight attributes of God that he wants to be reflected within, within his people. And so let's start with verses 10 through 13. This situation is where a lender takes collateral for a loan. He is not to enter the house, but to allow the borrower to select the collateral. This was meant to protect the dignity of the poor person, that the borrower would still be in charge of his decision-making rather than having to respond to the demands of a lender. How demeaning is it if, some, if your lender goes into your house and says, this, this, and this, and this, and those are mine until you pay this? It's very demeaning because you're not in charge of your life anymore. Furthermore, the use of the cloak in verse 12 is meant to highlight the extreme poverty of the borrower. This man is so poor that he has nothing to give except the clothes off of his back. And even then, the the cloak pulls double duty as a blanket at night. Now, what is right and true? What is the truth here? It would be right and true for the lender to keep the cloak in his possession. That was the deal, the contract. And yet the Lord calls him to return the cloak each night. And why? The lender is to understand the great need of the borrower and to generously meet the need of the borrower to have his cloak back so that he doesn't freeze at night. This generosity highlights God's gracious and generous justice. It's what Christ would do. He wouldn't stand upon his rights, but would rather consider others more significant than himself. Do you see the grace, the care, the desire to serve and not be served that's demonstrated in this directive? And then when we come to verses 17 and 18, we see the concern of the father for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That trio of vulnerable groups, I hope you heard that trio multiple times as we read. Again and again, he highlights their need and their vulnerability and his love and commitment to them. And the Lord roots justice for them in who he is. That's verse 18 again. The call to remember what the Lord did for them. In in Egypt, they were slaves. They were oppressed. They were subject to injustice after injustice. And the Lord set them free by his grace and mercy. To turn around and oppress the most vulnerable, or to to just not serve them at all, would be a great affront to the mercy and grace that had been shown to you. It's Deuteronomy's version of the parable of the ungrateful servant who had been forgiven a huge debt and then turns around and refuses to forgive a significant, though yet far smaller, debt. And then finally, we come to verses 19 through 22. This is the law that provides for the vulnerable people that we saw in verses 17 and 18 again and again they are highlighted because the Lord wants you to see them, to not just see the law, but to see them, to see the needy neighbor that is in your midst. Not only are there legal protections, but there are welfare protections as well. These are the gleaning laws 
that we see um, that youth, that Ruth uses to provide for herself and for Naomi in Ruth 2. And it's this law that really shows us the positive side of the ninth commandment because there's really no false witness here. There's no lying, no injustice. Rather, there is a care and concern for those around you. There is a gentle and generous heart on display here. After all, the crops are yours to do what you would like. And the Lord directs you still to be intentional about your giving and your generosity, your intentional giving of grace to those who need it. And notice the rationale and motivation. The giving is to the least of these is very near and dear to the Lord's heart. It pleases him to no end when we minister in his name to the needy and the vulnerable. He wants us to do good. Ephesians uh, 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He wants us to give a good and full witness to the, the God that we love and serve. And we do it because we love him. Remember, he says... Um, you are the sheep because when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And the disciples said, Lord, when did we see you hungry, naked, and thirsty? And he said, when you do this to the least of these, you do it unto me. The reason why we're generous isn't because it's just good to care for the poor. We do it because we love the Lord. And we do things unto him. Hopefully you see that the Lord cares about justice, about fairness, and certainly about the truth. But he also cares deeply about grace, care, and the least among us, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow. These commitments are to what is right, but also to what is loving. These commitments are found simultaneously within our great and merciful God. And truly, our salvation depends on both. You see, we need truth and love to go together. Truth without love is harsh and uncompromising and yet still true. This is, what, this is when being right overrides everything else. This makes God seem callous and mean because the standard, in fact, is perfection. God doesn't care because you didn't measure up. That's true justice. That's what's right. That's what we deserve. For those of us in the church, we know that that's not the gospel, though, because that's not an accurate portrayal of who God is. The other side isn't quite right either. Love without truth is chaos and shallow. You can't love without truly knowing, without truly seeing how things are and acknowledging how things should be. There can be no love without truth because the lie is always going to hurt more and always going to create a mess. When my wife looks at me, she can truly see my many flaws. It is very easy for her. And she has to live with them. But she loves me by working through those issues, not by pretending they're not there. Frank, you're prideful, arrogant, self-centered, and sometimes condescending. That's just true. I'm trying to work on it. 
But it does me no good. It is not loving to, not, to tell me the opposite. To pretend like I'm the most humble person you've ever met, the nicest person you've ever met. That's just not true. And I need to hear the truth. The gospel doesn't do either of those things, telling the truth without love or loving without the truth. Rather, the love and justice of God meet in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Jesus shows us our sins truly, but he also says in the same breath, those sins have been already paid for. The cross is where the ninth commandment sees its fulfillment. The truth and justice of God require payment for sin, death, and a curse. The love of God drives him not to stand on what is right, true, and just, but to embrace the unjust, which is grace. That's the definition of grace, is to give injustice to me that you might receive grace and favor. Favor. The love of God drives him to be generous and gracious by standing in our place and receiving the just punishment for our sin. In a way, he is returning the cloak to us. He's leaving the grain in the fields for us. He sees our great need for a savior. He knows that he is able and it is the joy that is set before him to meet that need. That's the gospel. He came into our mess and he would not leave us until we were better than he found us. And so my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus calls us to a faithful witness to the fullness of his character. While our passage gives us a lot of wisdom, most of us don't deal with leprosy that often, right? I really hope so. Most of us aren't lenders or landlords, though I know there's at least one of us that is. Most of us don't try or want to murder families for our own gain. I really hope that's true. And all of us aren't farmers. I don't think we have a farmer among us with crops to share with the vulnerable. What does it look like to obey the ninth commandment in this day and age? Well, we have a really great opportunity with the Afghan refugee settlement. What a great opportunity it is to show the fullness of God's love for, this, for the lost. That he meets those that are lost and he meets them where they are. So what does it mean for us, not just to participate with the Afghan refugee resettlement, but it, it, just in general, in our life. It means certainly that we're to be about the truth. But we can't just be about the truth because there's more to Jesus than just the truth. We often, saying that, we often say that being right doesn't give us the right to be jerks. But it goes further than just not being a jerk. You see, the Lord expects us to be better than, a, than just not a jerk. He expects us to love our neighbors as he did. If we really want to be like him, that means that we've got to get down in the muck with sinners, with care and patience, wisdom and perseverance. Jesus is and well, was and is a friend to sinners. Can that be said about us? Most of us spend like 90% of our time amongst believers, at least our free time. Can we be, when we're gone, if we've moved away or whatever, will the people that are still here say they were a friend of sinners? 
I don't think they can. Because most of the time, the church in America is more concerned about being right than we are about being with sinners. We don't usually win friends by pointing out how they're wrong about this, that, or the other. Because if you can convince or change somebody just through sound arguments, the giving of facts, and through persuasive arguments, we'd live in a very different world. Facebook and Twitter would be some of the most powerful tools in our arsenal in a world like that. But we don't live in a world like that. Rather, we live in a world where we're required to win the right to speak in people's lives. Let's face it. If I came to your house today, and told you all the ways in which you were living wrongly, how would you react? I would bet that most of you, even though I'm your pastor, would, respect, would respectfully but firmly tell me to just shove off and get out of your house. Why? Because for the most part, there's a lot of you and just one of me. I have probably not spent a ton of time with you individually. But for my students, for my juniors and seniors particularly, for Tristan, for Jackson, right? For Jonathan, for Hatcher, I have spent a lot of time with you guys. I've spent a lot of time with you through thick and thin. And so I hope that if I were to mess with your stuff a little bit, not to mention your heart, that you would let me. And I hope that when I mess with them, that they take the wounds that I, inflict, that I inflict upon their idols as faithful and loving truth. You see, we're not in this to win in the here and now. We're here to move the needle just a little bit. Dr. Dave, in every single new member's class, puts a timeline up on the board. And he starts it at negative five, which is the most hostile person to the gospel ever, and then, then zero, which is the point of conversion. And our job, our, well, not really our job, our goal isn't to move people from negative five to zero in the span of one conversation. Our goal is to move the needle just a little bit. Our goal isn't to win conversations, but to move, but to little by little move the needle just a little bit, to stay with sinners even as they sin. Our goal is to be with people long enough that they might begin just begin to taste and see that the Lord is good because they've been in his presence through us. And so we're to be about what is true, surely, but also to be about what is helpful. We're not being good witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ when we consistently think that telling the truth is enough. It isn't. Because the truth, with a capital T, got down with the wrong-headed, the inconsistent, the blatantly hostile, to lay down his life for them. The old adage, what would Jesus do, is fitting because it calls us to a full-bodied, nuanced picture of Jesus. Are you giving that picture in your, in, in your life? Are you giving that picture in every, in every case, in every way, at every time, to every person? Or are you giving tweets, posts, and blogs about him? Are you showcasing the full person of Jesus? Or are you giving sound bites and platitudes while leaving the lost to figure it out for themselves? 
that's what I'm doing. And I need not do that because it's a false witness to who the Lord Jesus is. And this doesn't stop with our witness to unbelievers. Ephesians 4 tells us that that Christians witness to other Christians too. That's the point of the local church body, to point us to Jesus through living life together. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that is, giving grace to one another, showing Jesus and giving a true witness. What happens? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, your brothers and sisters and their children are watching you because they need you. We need you to use the gift that you have to point us to Jesus. We need you to give a faithful witness to Jesus because we forget so very often. We need not just the truth, but a full-bodied, nuanced, generous, and gentle care that embodies Jesus and his Holy Spirit. And if and when you see me being a condescending jerk, which may, be this, which may be this sermon, it's hard for me to tell sometimes when I sit down to write sermons, you ought to call me on it and call me to repentance. You ought to give me truth for my sin. But I also need you to do it in a way that helps me. It's not helpful to blast me behind closed doors. It's not helpful to write posts about me. It's not helpful even usually to write an email to me. What I need is you. Because you have Jesus within you. I need to see Jesus through you. I need you to come alongside me as my brother and sister to hold me accountable, but mostly to remind me that Jesus and his church will never leave me nor forsake me. I need you to be the one who shows me Jesus, who sees my sin and still gives me grace. Not to continue to living in sin, but to be renewed by the Holy Spirit unto righteousness. I need a person, and that's Jesus. And since he's living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, that means I need you. You see, when I'm wrong, I'm the needy and vulnerable one. Sometimes I know that I'm wrong, and I know that I'm not doing what I should. And yet, I might not know what to do about it because I'm stuck in sinful patterns, or have issues from my childhood, or a million other reasons. Will you do what Jesus did for me? Will you do what Jesus did for you? Will you get down here with me? Will you get to know me and live life with me? Will you do that so that I can, that you can, will you do that so that you can give me the truth in a way that meets me where I am, lifts me up and grows me that I might be more like him? It's a lot of work. Pray for Sarah. It's a lot of pain and frustration and tears. And so this doesn't work without Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This doesn't work without him who tears down the dividing walls of hostility in the gospel. This doesn't work unless you're willing to be sinned against and yet still give grace. This doesn't work unless you're faithful, not just to the truth, but to the full witness of Jesus in the gospel. To mercy, to grace, to care, to generosity, to patient faithfulness despite everything.
All the ninth commandment asks us to do is to show each other Jesus. And we can, because he's with us. Let's pray. Father God, I confess that I am not a good witness to you. That time and time again to my children, to my wife, to my family, to, to the church, to those around me, to drivers on the road, that I proclaim a witness that is not accurate about you. That I'm not faithful. But Lord, you are. You are faithful when I am not, and you have sent your son to make me faithful when I am not. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the way in which we treat others, to see the way in which we give witness to you, that we would be convicted of our false testimony about our lies about you, that you would help us not be so messy and that we would in fact be better than the way in which you found us. Lord, sanctify us, we pray, that we might be more like you, loving you because of what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, remind us that you are there with us all the time. Make us gracious to sinners and help us live with one another in this church, which is full of them. May we embody your son to one another and to those that are lost. We pray, give us Jesus, show us Jesus that we might be like him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.